Welcome to Still Growing in Grace, a program dedicated to inspiring joy, giving hope, and delighting in grace. I'm Mike Zenker, and I'll be sharing with you a message of hope that will expand your understanding of God's love and amazing grace. God already deeply loves you, totally accepts you, and really, really likes you. Growing in Grace Ministries Canada and Hope Fellowship, your community church, invite you to enjoy today's program as we dig deeper into what it means to be still growing in grace. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing in Grace. I hope you're having a lovely day. It's a great day here in Southern Ontario. Um, I got a special program today for you. It's a replay from three years ago. Uh, and I got to apologize in the front end of my microphone. I was using the wrong one. If I don't check my settings on my program, it sometimes defaults to the camera microphone, which is not nearly as good as this little thingy. So my audio is not great, but that's not important because uh, the guest who I was interviewing was the one we're uh, listening to. So Paul Young, author of The Shack, um, uh, we did a, a, a conference a number of years ago, a, a grace and grieving conference, and I had some pre-conference conversations with him that I recorded, and that's what I'd like to share with you today. Uh, the topic of grief just does not go away. It's huge, and um, I think we have much, much more to learn on it. I'm not sure if I'm going to, I'm considering sharing the, the actual event recordings next week or the week after um, because the content's so important. If I don't do it next week, I will do it in the summer when I'm away. Uh, there's a couple weeks I'll be off and maybe I'll just have those ready at that time because, again, they're so, so good. And they're a little longer, um, but worth worth listening to for sure. So today, I want to give a shout out to Rudy Zacharias, Rudy and Michelle Zacharias in uh, Alberta. Um, they actually have William Paul Young with them right now. Uh, he is uh, speaking at an event called Be Brave. Let me just see if I get it right. Yep, uh, Rudy told me yesterday they're visiting and touring the Be Brave Ranch, um, which uh, I heard a little bit about from uh, Rudy, and I'm stunned uh, of what it is. Um, I might see if Rudy will be willing to have me interview him um, and, and see what's up with that uh, event. I think he and Michelle are uh, making connections there, but Paul Young is at that place. It's a place for... I, if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> uh, abuse recovery from children that have been abused, um, sexually abused, mentally abused. I, d I don't know all the details, but oh my goodness, if there's a place to go heal, oh my goodness, I'm, I, I'd be, I want to connect. I really do. So there's a really significant event. Um, Paul Young was at Rudy Michelle's home, uh, staying with them, um, hosted a small group. I saw a couple photos. So I thought, my goodness, let's let's have a Paul Young conversation this morning too. So hopefully the event at the Be Brave Ranch goes well. I believe Paul's speaking there as well for a, a, a supporters day or whatever's going on. But I hope it goes really, really well there too. So Paul, if you're uh, checking in, uh, love you. I miss you. Um, uh, I've gotten to know Paul here and there over the years. Uh, he's been here in Waterloo several times. Uh, each time he comes, it's it's a delight. It's an honor, and uh, it's pretty cool. All right, that's all I've got for now. Oh, one more thing. Stay tuned. Um, Baxter Kruger is coming to Toronto uh, in, I think, three or four weeks. So second weekend of 
June 2023. So uh, more coming. If you want more information, send me a note. Uh, send me an email. Message me on Facebook or something. And once I have the actual poster, I'll I'll start blitzing it. And I'll probably share more on it next week. That's all I've got for now. Let's get into this interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, may it speak to your heart. If you're watching, please say hello. would love to know where you're watching from. I'm watching this um, for the first time in three years right now. So uh, comment away and whatever, and I'll come back on afterwards. That's all I got, and we will catch you, nope, at the end of the interview. So let's take a listen to this. Here we go. The book, The Shack. Uh, Maybe you could give, some people may not know the story, because you were here in 2013. I can't believe it was that long ago. Um, But you shared your story, uh, the story behind The Shack. Uh, And we're catapulting or piggybacking that for this event, because the book deals with a lot of stuff. Give us a quick summary of what led you to the book, and what you've, uh, some of the results of the book that you've heard around the world. Oh my gosh. So, easy, easy question that could take hours, right? Right. what led up to the book was just getting to a place in my life where I finally felt like I was healthy. And that was the year I turned 50. So it's not like it was just an overnight sort of thing. I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid. So I'm steeped in modern evangelical fundamentalism. And yep. um, that's, that's the world I grew up in. And I'm a firstborn on top of it. So oh my goodness, yeah. I, I, I had all sorts of religious expectations. Well, I'm 51 now. So I, it's like when I, when the age I'm at now is when you began this. Well, I, I, the real, I began it from a child, you know, because sure. I, I think the process in our lives is it wraps itself inside the world that we grow up in. And, and our experiences are never left behind. They are mm-hmm. then worked into the sound that we become. So I can, I can look back at my life and say, I can track it all the way back to my childhood and say there are certain things that I experienced as a child, which were incredibly wonderful and other things that were incredibly destructive. Mm. You know, um, child abuse started for me in a culture that is not, uh, it's not my passport culture. It's culture I grew up in overseas, but the, the child abuse began inside of that culture before I was five years old. So, wow, that's amazing. Oh, it's terrible. And, um, and there's nothing quite like child abuse, as far as I know. There's nothing quite like child abuse that will tear you know, the, the fabric of the human soul. So, so uh, again, growing up in a multicultural world was an incredibly wonderful thing. Growing up with a very angry father who didn't have a chip for being a dad was a very mm. terrible thing. The sexual abuse was a terrible thing. Uh, being sent away to boarding school at six and having big boys come at night and molest the little boys, that was not a, a, a good experience. But I thought you were on missions trip. It should have been extra safe. Uh, yeah, right. No, I was part of a generation. I'm old enough to, to say that you know there was a generation of us – not just one. There were a number of generations of us that were basically sacrificed on the altar of mission. And there was a sense that if you were doing the work of God, you would be like Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his son on the altar. You know, that, that would be the real test, whether you could, you could put your own children at risk. And, 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 that, and that's not an accusation 
you know, my parents were trying to do the best that they knew how mm-hmm. inside of a frame of reference of a religious conviction that, um, that I think originated in compassion in a sense, you know, uh, because there's a longing in us to, to actually do something in the world that matters, that, that expresses truth and goodness and reality but it comes packaged in our own experience. And so it's layered with all the damage we've had with all the sense of abandonment or, you know, we have, um, we have 12 grandchildren right now. Wow. Um, and they're all 12 years old and under. And, and one of them is adopted from Uganda who, and she was a, basically a throwaway child in a, mm. in a world where she wasn't wanted. And, and, you know, she's now in second grade and, but we're going to have to deal with some things because it, it comes with that experience. There was a time where she basically lived on weak, weak tea and white bread. I mean, that, that was her sustenance growing up. And so, you know, there are some, there are some things that are going to have to uh, be exposed and come to the surface because of the losses in her life. And, and, and love doesn't just make those things go away. You know, actually love creates an environment where those things can be exposed and healing can happen. It's, that sounds so opposite to what we grew up with because the Western world thinks it's, it, you gotta be passive then, you know, if you're going to be loving you, that means passive and no confront, no confrontation. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I was, I was with Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan. Oh my goodness. He's amazing. He is amazing. And, uh, and I did a conference with him on the Trinity. And, uh, so we, we were driving along and he says, he says to me, so he says, Paul, this may sound really strange coming from a celibate Franciscan priest, but he said, I think the greatest gift that God ever gave the human race is marriage. He said, wow. because it puts you into proximity with someone where, you can't hide your crap the way that you, you did. You know, and a lot of us go into marriage thinking we're a certain kind of person, but, but the friction of exposure to relationship causes our crap to come to the surface mm-hmm. in one form or another. Mine did, you know, and, and part of the reason it took 50 years for me to heal is because I kept everything hidden. You know, because that's the way we grew up, right? Is, well, don't, don't we also start our relationships dating only showing the best? There's no way we're going to show our crap. We're only going to show the best part so we can woo the other person, hook them into the ring, say the I do, and then, and then what? Yeah, like, I don't, and I think most of that's subconscious. I don't think it's yeah, a conscious attempt. I agree. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. So it's not like we've devised a plan to get past Correct. somebody's crap detector, you know? Yeah. It's that we are all trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, the, that's a commonality in terms of loss, is that we all become survivalists. That is, we develop certain skill sets in order to have a sense of being safe. For example, lying. Lying, everybody, they don't like lying. They are against lying. And yet, most people employ that survival mechanism in one sense or another. Or you don't, you don't tell the real truth because of the, you don't tell the whole truth, you know, because of the um, repercussions or the consequences. And so you learn, you learn to guard yourself, you know, mm. for, for me, my dad was an abusive disciplinarian and, and lying 
lying became a survival skill to try to get out of the beatings, you know, and um, that and begging, you know. Mm. So, so, you know, over time, um, lying worked some of the time. And so it became part of the arsenal of survivalism. And then I drug that into my other relationships where I didn't want to deal with the emotional repercussions of a particular conversation. And, you know, and it happened. Thank God I'm, I'm married to um, an incredibly powerful and strong woman who, who, um, who wouldn't allow me to just stay hidden. Wow. She's all about exposure. And, and I think exposure is a good thing. Um, I actually think it's necessary for the healing to actually happen. I think the unexposed is the unhealed. So it's like an honesty that's forced. Like instead of uh, protecting the lies, uh, the exposure means I'm exposing who I really am. Do you still love me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oftentimes there's, there are a lot of us who are so broken that it's not like we're going to volunteer that kind of exposure. <laughs> I agree. We have to actually get caught and, um, you know, we get caught in our lies or we caught, you know, we build a little house of cards, a, a persona that we've created in order to survive. And at some point, and, and, and I think, I think God has absolutely the intention of destroying anything that is in us that is not of love's kind, which would include every part of what we fabricated as a survival persona, an avatar. And, um, there's this great passage, which I love, which gives my people all kinds of fits. And that's the one where Jesus says, you know, many will say to me on that day, I did miracles in your name and I healed the sick and I, I preached the gospel and I did all these good religious things, you know, and Jesus will, Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me into everlasting destruction because I don't even know you. Right. That'll mess up people's heads. Well, it's one of those passages that you just kind of skim over. And, yep. uh, you know, because it just, it's like, really? And, and when we hear the words everlasting destruction, we think hell, you know. Yeah. And, um, but that's just, we're so hell conscious as my people are anyway. We've, we've got a bigger relationship to hell than we ever had to Jesus. Yeah. And um, so uh, what's that passage actually saying? It's saying you've confused your performance with your identity. And I don't build a relationship with an avatar. I, I refused to treat the person you really are as the person you present to me. Wow, that's beautiful. Right? Yeah. So I, I want that avatar absolutely and completely destroyed. Why? So that you and I have a possibility of a relationship that love can actually happen. Because as long as you're performing your sense of identity i don't even know who you are you're not telling me who you are you're not being a truth teller there's no basis for relationship so is the is the shack then a, a story of you walking through how to arrive at that awareness yeah a lot of it is yes so um had a woman from nashville who's a writer leanne stewart she says to me she wrote me an email when the book first came out and she said I have no idea who you are. I don't know anything about you, but my sense is that Missy, who is the main character's daughter, who's abducted and presumed to be murdered, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child. Wow. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. 
And I, and I tell people all the time that, that Mackenzie's weekend in the shack, which is the centerpiece for the story, that that weekend represents an 11-year dismantling and rebuilding journey for me. And um, I would love extreme soul makeover. You know, I'd love instant transformation, give me a red or blue pill, but we're too incredibly crafted for quick fixes, mm-hmm. you know. And, and if, if love, if God is love, and, and, and real love does not force transformation, you know, it is present with you. It confronts you, right? Because yeah. that's part of exposure. But it is not willing to stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains. So there is a fiery process. I, I love the statement that religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there. Yeah, yeah I love that. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that. That's awesome. It is. And I think it's... It's very true. Everybody gets salted with fire, you know, which means that fire is a restorative thing. It's to burn away everything in us that is not of love's kind. And, and that is a journey that all of us are on. And human relationships put us into those kinds of uh, environments in which transformation can actually happen. So does loss, by the way. There is something really clarifying about loss. I have a bunch of friends on death row in Tennessee, in Nashville, in Unit 2 of Riverbend uh, Penitentiary. And, and these guys have become my friends over the last few years. And, um, and I was talking to Terry, one, one of my friends there, in, who I know the best of all the guys there. And, um, and, I was, and we were talking about, I said, Terry, you know, your prison is obvious. You know, it's brick and steel and gravel and wire, and, um, and there's really a great clarity to your mm. prison, right? Wow, yeah, 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 I know where you're going. <laughs> yep. Well, so many of us out there, outside of these walls, have no clarity about the prisons that we live inside. In fact, yeah. we have so got accustomed to the prisons of our lives that we have called them home. And, um, and so what what I may see as a prison in a person's life, they may call home. So I need to be very careful not to pull them through the bars of their own prison for their own sake. Mm-hmm. Not my job. No, but my some, some religious people want to. They use the, they have a little tiny sliver of awesome good news, and then they use it as a fire hydrant on people instead of a reverse osmosis tap. You know, like, don't overdo it. Be loving and gentle. Don't overdo this little nugget you have, because that's even a limited nugget. Even you think, you think you know the world, but no. Yeah. That's yeah. What I, think, I think your book has done that for me. It has woken me up to slivers of questions, or making me address questions, or at least... Um, be aware there are questions I had, you put words to them, and now i got to process them. It's like, wait a minute, somebody actually said that? I've been thinking that the whole time, but now I don't know how to walk through it. And then your book does. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, extreme soul makeover would be much easier than actual process, the process of transformation. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, going back to something you had said earlier about about creating a persona in order to win the love and the affection of someone, you know, <laughs> yep. like the dating thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's the difference between real love and infatuation, because infatuation is what the Greek would call eros, which is not a term that's used in scripture, by the way. Mm. And um, it, was a, it was considered an absolute 
diabolical, um, um, not, not even a reality. It was considered such a delusion that it, it, it carried a demonic name associated wow. to it. Wow. Yeah. I've only heard the softened version that it's self-seeking, self-centered. <laughs> yeah. dumbed or, down or, or that it's um, erotic and therefore the sexual part of love or the, you know, the well, romantic gives, part. Right? But that messes up the, the physical, sexual, uh, healthy perspectives on it. If you associate that with that. Correct. But that's what has been done in our culture and also within some of our religious Christianity, too. We've, we've created eros as one of the kinds of love that has some sense of legitimacy, whereas I don't think it's legitimate at all. Our, I think our equivalent would be infatuation. And infatuation is where you are pulled out of your senses based on what? Based on projecting your own needs through an object. It's relational porn is what it is. It's pornography of relationship, where, where it's not just an image on a, on a screen or an image in a magazine or something. This is a three-dimensional image through which you are trying to love yourself. And, and infatuation is based on not knowing. And that's the point I'm trying to get to, is mm -hmm. that real love is always based on knowing. Therefore, that which keeps you from being known has to be exposed and destroyed right? Which would be all the survival skills and all this. And, and a lot of that we have so incorporated into our existence. That's why I say we, we call our prison home, you know, <laughs> that it's what we know. And uh, it reminds me of so many times where Jesus would say to someone who was a paralytic or, or blind, they, he'd say, so what do you want? And it's like, isn't it obvious? Well, no, it's not obvious. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of us, you know, some event that hurt us in our childhood, we cannot let go of it. And therefore, we now call it home. We call that we don't know how to present our sense of identity apart from that loss. I, I just had a thought and uh, confirm with me on this if it's true, because I think it's true. Um, I know you've gone through sexual abuse. Uh, we've shared our story. Or I've shared mine with you. I too have gone through um, sexual abuse from a Roman Catholic priest and a very abusive mother. But it wasn't until I was like 45 years old that some triggers woke up. And I'm finding more and more men especially that aren't able to even talk about or something's going on in them at later age in life. Not when they're younger or when they're getting married. But have you found a lot of um, more mature men are suddenly now waking up to, I got to deal, what is going on? Something's waking yeah. up and I don't know what to do about it. Does that yeah. ring a bell to you? Absolutely. And there's, there's no question about it. A lot of times you have the um, psychological resources to just bury stuff. And, and, and you, what you do is you turn outward, you turn into workaholism or <laughs> alcoholism or some kind of addiction, you know, <laughs> mission work for God or creating a ministry or, I mean, you can put it into any category you want. And Ouch. well, it's, it's the truth. That's what we do. Right. Rather than, rather than do the internal work is where the real work is done. Um, we then make our job to do the external work and everything becomes performance and presentation. And that's the avatar that Jesus wants to destroy. Wow. Right? And so we then create an identity based on our performance. And in the religious community, it would be like, you know, having a religious title or having a religious mission or all of that. But 
but what happens is that suddenly, you know, you've, you've managed to survive until you're an older man. And one, your internal resources aren't as capable. Uh, the focus is no longer so much on the outside, especially if you've got kids and grandkids. Mm-hmm. You know, grandchildren will change you in a way that your children weren't capable of doing. And, I have uh, no idea. Yeah, no, trust me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the truth. And, but, but again, it's like all of a sudden there's more space and into that space comes all these conversations you've never had. And yeah. all these elements of exposure that you've never allowed, you know, uh, the secrets will find their way to the surface at some point. And we are they're getting, they're getting purged, right? It's like the fire of gold, yeah. whatever is purging all the stuff that shouldn't be there out. Yeah. And, and that heat is necessary in order to melt so that the crap comes to the surface. I don't like Southern heat. That's in like the tropics and stuff in the Caribbean. I don't like the emotional heat. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is devastating. And it's not just hard. It is, it is cataclysmic sometimes. And, and that's what a lot of us, I mean, we've just piled the, the locker full of crap, you know, and then keep trying to keep the door shut. And it's <laughs> poisons leak out and begin to devastate our relationships. You know, unforgiveness is like that. Oh, um, my, yeah, yeah. Yeah, unforgiveness is is like wearing a corpse, you know? And, I just, I'm just finishing on this uh, Still Growing Grace uh, radio program, a series on uh, healing life's hurts through understanding forgiveness. And it's about a 15 week uh, series. And the one that just aired today was uh, on the last myth of what forgiveness is not. Uh, it happens to be uh, forgiveness is not, as in not the same thing as reconciliation. And I think it's one of the greatest hindrances preventing people from forgiving someone because they're they've been told well that means i have to automatically go in connection um but i'm I'm, before you respond um we're coming to the end of this half of the program and uh we're going to continue the second half in just a moment so paul last time uh the last uh, episode we were we ended up talking about um, unforgiveness uh, being something, and I talked to you about reconciliation being a myth, uh, that it is not the same thing as forgiveness. And Correct. I don't know if you remember your response of what you're going to respond to that, but I want to continue and, and follow this up, and then we'll talk about the conference coming up. Yeah. So um, forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. Reconciliation is for the sake of the perpetrator. Mm. That's, a, that's, that's a big deal. And they're not the same thing. They are not the same thing. They're not even close to being the same thing. Um, forgiveness is letting go of something so that you can be free from it, right? This is why I say that unforgiveness is like wearing a corpse on your back, the corpse of the memory of what was done to you, the corpse of what that person did right and so but you, that corpse, you, you also talked about the letting go of the other person's throat, throat or right. poisoning someone else so that and but or something like that there was a quote you gave me that was brilliant of what it yeah, is yeah 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 so in the book itself it talks about how forgiveness is letting someone letting go of someone's throat yeah and um but it's like we've got them clutched to us right and so the the corpse of that memory begins to putrefy all of our other relationships you cannot get away from the toxicity of unforgiveness. It just begins to then penetrate into our family relationships and to 
you know, and, and, and will begin to build an identity based on the existence of that pain. So mm. a lot of people who are stuck in unforgiveness, um, when you first meet them, a lot of times will tell you their loss. That's the first thing that they'll tell you because that's now become part of their identity. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a time where you've gone through loss, where that becomes right front and center yep. about how you need to talk about it. But There's I'm a time about, and a place. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about people who have held on to these kinds of losses for decades, you know. Yep. And the thing about forgiveness is that you don't actually need a face to do it, you know. And in the, in the movie, in the book, you never see the perpetrator's face. And people would say, why, why don't you? And I said, because you don't need a face for forgiveness. For reconciliation, you have to have a face. I, I am, reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. That's a whole It's not automatic. Animal. Absolutely not. Yep. And it is for the sake of the perpetrator, but the perpetrator is completely, um, uh, it is wrong for the perpetrator to demand or expect reconciliation. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And, and, and this, it's wrong for the victim to place that demand on themselves. Mm. That is that, that, and that's where the confusion between, between forgiveness and reconciliation happens. And as a result, people don't have decent boundaries. They keep getting re-victimized because they think that by forgiving, they need to trust. Yeah. And it's like, no, you can, you can forgive someone and never trust them again. And that's totally okay. Oh my goodness, here I love it. Yes, I uh, I'm in my world. Um, I'm, I'm a chaplain in multiple areas. I'm a nursing home chaplain. I'm a fire department chaplain, but I'm also a funeral home chaplain. And I do almost a hundred funerals a year. I love doing funerals. I love being there for people when they're having such a great difficulty time of time. But I also sit down with families and you'll get this right now based on what you just said. That's what triggered it. Um, if you sit down and a death has occurred in a family and stuff was not dealt with as in mom or dad dies, suddenly the kids who've been fighting because of uh, something mom or dad separated them on. Now they're stuck dealing with a conflict and a loss and not only losing and grieving uh, their loved one who died, but now nobody knows how to deal with anything else like relationships. And it's a mess if it's not dealt with. The fangs come out, jealousy comes out, greed comes out. Nobody wants to talk at a, at a, a necessary healthy level because they can't. They weren't right. prepped. Well, and this is not just prepped. We were just never taught. And no. You know, and this is, I think, truer for men, generally speaking, than for women, generally speaking. And that is that a lot of men have never been taught even the simple relational skills of conversation mm. about, about their own heart, about their own emotions. Um, they've just never been taught that. Um, and uh, Kim and I went last night and saw the, the, um, the movie about uh, Fred Rogers. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. And, um, it's, it was different than I had anticipated. You know, I don't know what I had anticipated, but, but there is a scene in there where the main character who's not Fred Rogers and, uh, but the main character is trying to take steps to open up, um, trying to find a way to say things about emotions that he has not been able to tap into. And it's his relationship with Fred Rogers on the outside of this that then moves him in the direction of his own relationship with his spouse. And, um, and, uh, and it's a very powerful little piece there because you, you get to watch someone stepping into a world that they've never been in before hmm. you know, because they weren't taught. 
and and um, and I wasn't, you know. So a, a lot of my marriage, I just simply shut down because you either you either come out as antagonism and violence of one sort or another, you know, uh, anger, or you just disappear. And I was a disappearer, you know, because my dad was an emotional verbal processor. The problem was I married an emotional verbal processor, and um, and so my and I and again largely unconscious at the time. I can look back and see it clear as a bell now, but my response was to just disappear because that's what I did when my dad came at me, right? And um, and and it took me a long time. <laughs> Here's a survival skill. Kim would say to me, um, you know when I'm, you know I'm a, this is how I process, right? And so when I'm processing like this, I'm not asking for help. Oh, right? I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is hilarious. I'll be quiet. Keep going. She says, <laughs> if I actually want your help, I'll ask for it. Oh no. But on my side, here, here's what I'm doing. <laughs> Where I went to hide was in my mind, in my intellect, right? Because that was part of the persona that I built up. I'm a smart guy, you know? And even though I thought that I just fooled people, at least my persona was smart. And um, so, so my way to deflect was to try to help. And so actually, I'm not actually trying to help Kim. I'm actually trying to stop her from emotionally processing so I don't feel like a piece of crap. Wow. That was what was going on inside of me, right? So, so I'd couch it in noble sounding language. It's the same kind of lies that men do where they say, you know, oh, well, I didn't want her to be worried, so I didn't tell her about our financial situation or yeah. whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of lies that end up just, if we'd listened to our wives, we'd have been far wealthier <laughs> than we are, you know. Yeah. They're all listening. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but again, again, there's a survival mechanism, right? Yeah. And so it's the same, same sort of skill where I could, I could take what somebody was accusing me of and I could make it their fault. Mm -hmm. I could spin it back on them really fast. And I didn't even know how, how I did it. It was just, it was a survival mechanism. And uh, so in, in my relationship with Kim, it took me a lot of time to learn how to do this. And I think men present a persona of having it together because that's a survival mechanism and, 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 and women buy into it and then they get, they marry the guy and find out that, you know, that persona is about a, an inch deep and a mile wide. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, who are you actually? You know, because like you said, we presented something and we, and that presentation is not to win them over. Not, it was, to stay safe way more than it was to ever win anybody. Else. I love that. That's, that sounds more authentic. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Cause I would uh, typically me, I would run to a guilt trip feeling, Oh, oh shoot. Am I really being authentic here? You know, that, that's, no, my... that's not a, that's not a guilt trip. That's a shame trip. Okay. I'm ashamed. Yeah. Shame is my, has been my second language and I've been unlearning the, the message of shame in my life for many years. Yeah, I right. didn't know how consumed I was. It framed um, my language and my relationship with my wife because I would want to make sure she's feeling okay. Cause I felt bad about myself. Oh, it's okay, dear. It's okay. And then when we started being honest, cause five years ago I started doing some counseling. She yeah. was not happy because not, I had personal counseling, but it, it I did a pendulum swing of being too honest. 
<laughs> which wasn't great either for the relationship. And we worked through that. That was a hard, hard time as I'm working through my pain. Yeah. Um, by, and then, two, you know, by too honest, do you mean that you didn't know how to communicate the truth in such a way that it wasn't abusive? Because no, because it wasn't abusive. I, I think I, I was saying things for the sake of here. I gotta say it. This is how I really feel. It may sound harsh, but I have to find. I, I gotta be honest and not say it's and say the opposite. Where I would, I would, not say the truth, and then eventually, um, in uh, through some counseling help, I, I was I was encouraged to, you know what? Don't regress. Be firm. Say this. I, I've not talked about this. Here it is, and it. It, it really rocked the boat a little bit. For, sure. Well, for of course it will. But I'm, I'm kind of going after the idea of being too honest, as if you were partly now going to go back to lying, you know. And mm. so I don't think your language is legit. I think you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I didn't, I was trying to learn how to communicate and didn't do it kindly. Mm. Right. Yeah, because she sometimes says I sound mean, but I'm, I don't feel I'm being mean. I'm trying to verbalize something. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. But but you've got a pattern of relationship in which, yeah, you know, the way that you come across is because I know this from personal experience. I did this to one of my girls not, not a month ago, where I'm trying to be objective and helpful, and I absolutely trash something that was precious to her. Ouch. Yeah. I've done that too. And I'm, yeah. I feel bad for that. I, I'm trying to learn. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was trying to be honest, but actually there was a whole lot of other crap going on underneath that mm. I didn't realize. It's almost like you need a guide to walk through that. You can't, as a couple, you need someone to sometimes coach you through to referee the conversation. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think, I think you can, you can, it's better to, to be in the midst of that conflict than to just hide it completely, yeah. you know? And, and that's a hard thing for us, especially when conflict has been such a, a marker for the way we've grown up. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then our avoidance of it has been our survival skill, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, oh my gosh. So it is learning a new way to communicate, learning a vocabulary that we didn't have before. Yeah, I had no idea your tone mattered. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, even interpreting scripture tone matters. Oh, I know, I know. So, okay, yeah. we, we, got, we got about uh, 10 minutes left. Okay. Uh, I'd like to dig into the conference coming up. And okay. uh, I, my goal is to address some big questions people have. And I, I'm wondering if, if you have some pretty quick ones off the top of your head that typically come your way. People are asking you some of the jugular, go for the jugular uh, questions of where's God in this pain? If God is good, how could he let this happen? Like God is, is that, suffering. That's a huge one right there. Theodicy is what the technical theological term is. And it's will, like, will we have time to address that in the conference, do you think? Is there... There's no question. You can't avoid it. Okay, If, good. if you're going to deal with loss and grief and suffering, it's like, you know, it's like I have two cousins who both took their own lives because of schizophrenia. You know, and it's like, so if there's a God who's good, how come? you know, or where was God in this? Or, you know, we love the why question as if that was going to solve something. But, uh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, you cannot avoid, you cannot avoid if there is any sense of a transcendent goodness, a transcendent divine nature of, of love, then it, it runs smack into loss. And it's like, what do you do? You know, we've had 
we've had the losses. I told you some of my own personal losses, but you know, we had a six month period where Kim, we were just married and Kim's mom goes in for routine surgery, has a massive coronary at age 59 and passes away over three days. But three months before that, my 18 year old brother, Stephen was killed. And three months after Shirley died, my five-year-old niece, Jennifer was killed the day after her fifth birthday. Wow. That's a lot. Oh my gosh. By the time that Jennifer um, um, had had passed, Kim Kim didn't have the capacity to even go to the funeral because she's much more healthy than I am, right? I could disassociate and compartmentalize and be the strong person and not feel it, you know, not completely, but at least I was much more self-protective. I'd completely fall apart now, which is evidence of the health in my life, not not evidence. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, I know we know loss, we live in a world of loss, but there's also this deep sense of longing for the good and for love and for kindness and for like, so in the conflict between love and loss, how do you, how do you work that out? How do you see that? What is going on? And and, and so there are some elements of this that are absolutely crucial. Um, what is the character and nature of God? And what is the character and nature of being a human being? Mm. And we'll end up talking about that. Because okay. if, you, if you get those things wrong, you get everything wrong. I, I agree. Yeah. Because people are looking for hope. They're trying to find hope in their darkness, uh, hope in the pain. So they may not understand it. They think they do, but they know they don't. Please give us some direction. And so, and, and, and direction's not the. It's not going to be the solution. It's yeah. going to be the openness to presence. That's going mm-hmm. to be where we're going to find the solution. This is why you being a chaplain matters to those folks that you are with. That's why the healing, you know, the people who are doing the twelve-step programs and the people who are who are in the midst of those losses and your first responders, how they relate to people changes things completely mm-hmm. by presence. You know, um, I was I was recently I was in a in Eastern Oregon, and during the question and response time, someone asked me. They said, "I'd like to get your comment on this Irish uh, quotation that when you when you die, the only question that will really matter is, did you have any impact? That that's the question. So, what do you think about that? And and one is that." they were talking about influence more than impact, right? But, yeah. but they're saying the only question that will really matter is whether you had an impact by your presence in the world. And, and I've never been asked that before. And it's one of those things that just was immediately there in my mouth before my mind could think about it enough. So it was actually came across as very brilliant. But, but it, was, it, just, it just was one of those things that made me look really good. And, um, but what I said was, you know, I've never heard a child ask that question. Wow. Because I said, you have to become an adult to ask that question because a child assumes presence is impact, right? It's I'm here, you know, I don't have to do anything. My question would be who's asking that question in the first place when you cross over, like really? (laughs) Well, well. You know, and like I said, you have to be an adult to ask that question. Yeah. Where suddenly performance has become that's, the basis. That's a brilliant response. Huh. I told you. 
And yeah, it happened so fast, it obviously didn't come from my mind. You know? <laughs> so that's, that's where I trust uh, the Holy, Holy Spirit. So Incredible. But it is. It's the right, it was the right answer. And it's like, no, we're designed to be children, and our impact is by presence. So it's, it's a similar thing in terms of dealing in the midst of loss when you're around people. It's not even what you say, because a lot of us don't know what to say, so we say stupid things. Yeah. And so, so what is what is it that shakes a person with a horrific loss? What does it do to them, and what kind of questions hit their heads? What have you seen and experienced? If you can put those into words, because somebody listening might go, "That's me." Like, what do you think? You're gonna, you know, everybody responds differently because of what they bring to the table. Yeah. And you know, some people will lock up. Some people actually be emotional and lament well and grieve well a lot of us just we just are stuffers you know we'll just bury it inside and we don't feel anything and then we feel guilty about not feeling anything yeah you know one we don't know how to lament or grieve very well two is that we um we don't realize what a process grieving is and so you know there are times when it comes through just like a wave. It just rolls over you. And, and that's normal. That's okay. And then sometimes the body cannot handle the emotional uh, intensity. And so it just backs off and you don't feel anything. Mm. That's normal too. Yeah. And, and what people in general, what they long for in the midst of loss is simply presence. Someone who is with them, who doesn't have to say anything. But you don't need a degree for that. No, <laughs> no, you absolutely, in fact, the degree can sometimes be an inhibitor, you know, and uh, because then you think you got to say something and solve something or fix something. And this is not something to be fixed. It's something to be, to, to live inside of and walk through inside one day's grace at a time. And yeah. that's it, you know, that's, um, but it's very clarifying. This is why I think you like funerals is because, mm. you know, it suddenly, you know, real things come to the surface. You know, death is absolutely wrong. And, it's, and part of what we need to learn how to do is be furious about things that are wrong. And, um, but at the same time, if there's any backhanded grace to death itself, it's that it clarifies a lot of things. It, brings to the surface that which matters. Suddenly, you know, all the, the, the 80 hour work week doesn't matter if the person you love is no longer there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a clarifying, it's I, I had a clarifying a, fire. I, I had a, uh, a husband um, give his wife's eulogy the other day as she had uh, taken her life. And in the eulogy, he said, you know, I always said, I'm going to die first. Um, and then you said, no, I want to die before you. And then he, he pretty much yelled it out, but I didn't want it to be like this. And he was angry. And I thought, oh, brilliant. Yeah, it was like a, a moment him. of, it was, it was really articulate. And I, I'd not heard that in a service in 20 years. Just yeah. that millisecond of pure emotional truth that didn't need a, a definition. It was like, wow. And, and it gave permission. You know, in, in the Shaq movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's a, there's a scene where Mackenzie, who's uh, Sam Worthington's the actor, and he's bringing down the body of his daughter. And, and he, said, he said to uh, Gil Netter, the producer, he said, you know, 
by this time in the movie arc, in the storyline, Mackenzie has dealt with forgiveness. He's dealt with um, loss. He's dealt, he's, he's dealt with the issue of his dad. He's all this. He said, I think this should be a, just a scene of closure. I think I'll play it, play it very, you know, uh, on uh, low key. And Gil laughs. It goes like, you do that. Well, he tried it a dozen times. And every time when he, well, one is he had a, when he first came on set, he had a 10 week old little baby boy, his first child. So now he's holding a, a child that's, you know, not much bigger. And, and every time he got into that scene, he fell completely apart. And one of the greatest gifts of the movie is that scene because it gave people permission to grieve the losses because they are losses Mm -hmm. and we need to learn how to grieve well. So. Wow. I, I forgot a lot of elements of that conversation big time. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul Young. Um, the conference that followed was so good. Uh, he did a, a, I think a, a Saturday night, um, and then he spoke at, on Sunday morning at our church. And again, phenomenal, really, really amazing content. I, I think I might go back and just re-listen to what we just heard this morning. I hope that was encouraging to you. Um, Share it if it was. Uh, there are folks that need to hear it. I need to rehear parts of that for sure. It was just that that good. Um, that's all I got for you today. I hope that was encouraging. And uh, again, Rudy and Michelle in Alberta, I hope you guys are having a great time with Paul Young at the Be Brave event. And may that go well. And I look forward to hearing more on that. Uh, but for now, I hope you all have a great week. And we will catch you next week. Thanks for watching. Join me next time on Still Growing in Grace for more good news. Enjoy previous episodes by downloading our podcast at growingingrace.ca. You can also visit hopefellowshipycc.com to find our service times and location. If this show has been an encouragement to you, please consider making a donation today at growingingrace.ca and help us keep spreading this good news. Thank you again for tuning in to Still Growing in Grace.